Mind Crime Limited Show with me, Swim Dobson, and him, Tim Patton. Today we're joined by Matteo Salonia of uh, the University of Nottingham to discuss what was Christendom and how did it end? Matteo is a lecturer on in um, history at uh, the University of Nottingham in Ningbo and is an expert in um, early Renaissance history. Is that, is that, fa- that fair, Matteo? Early Renaissance? Yeah, uh, I would say uh, late Middle Ages, early modern period. Yes. Thank you for joining us, Matteo. Hello, Sweden. Hello, team. Uh, thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Thank you for joining us, Matteo. Now to the topic at hand. So, Matteo, what was Christendom? And uh, what were the ideas that underlie this sort of civilizational period in European history? I think that um, uh, to define uh, Christendom, we have to, first of all, take a step back from uh, most of our assumptions about the modern state and about the secular world in which we live, the secularized world in which we live today. Latin Christendom in particular uh, will be the part of Christendom that we'll be discussing. And Latin Christendom was really, I would say, an array of self-governing kingdoms, nations, cities, and different kinds of associations and communities. So uh, in other words, these didn't have a centralized or territorialized (coughs) monopolist of uh, legislation, jurisdiction, or violence as we have today in the modern state. Um, Rather, these different communities were united by the same Christian faith. Um, Over time, this idea was, uh, we could say, embodied in the development uh, of two parallel hierarchies, uh, empire and church, or anyway, the secular sphere and the ecclesiastical sphere. And uh, this distinction of political and religious spheres was unique to Christian civilization. And it forms, I would say, the context uh, for the spread of ideas such as rights, claims, and individual freedom. In other words, this duality between the political sphere on the one hand and the religious sphere on the other hand, this distinction between church and state, which is so characteristic of Christianity. Um, well, this duality created a constant tension, um, a constant need for cooperation between these two spheres, which uh, in turn uh, had to check the power of the other and had to articulate in sophisticated ways uh, their claims to autonomy and action in society. And uh, as a result of these um, rights claims and uh, rights discourses were imbued in pretty much all contexts of these uh, Christian societies. So communities and polities in medieval Latin Christendom uh, we could say were were kind of obsessed um, uh, by their privileges, uh, charters, and rights precisely because of this con- context of of constant uh, discussion and clashes between hierarchies. I would also stress that there were competing jurisdictions and overlapping hierarchies also within each 
of these two spheres within the secular hierarchy and within the ecclesiastical one. So just to give you a practical example, uh, when in medieval Europe, uh, universities uh, are invented and start to um, uh, start to appear throughout the map of Christendom. Well, universities have their own jurisdiction, which one may say is at times secular under the secular umbrella or under the uh, the uh, the ecclesiastical umbrella if they are under the protection of the pope or of, or of the local bishop. Um, but uh, the issue is that nevertheless, the universities are self-governing bodies. So you have a free association of people who gather together, who give rules to each other um, and uh, who rule themselves and who even have the right to adjudicate um, uh, legal arguments, legal disputes uh, between their members, and uh, also to judge their members, uh, their members in uh, in cases uh, uh, regarding, you know, crimes um, or, or other disputes. So um, as a result of all this, uh, what you have um, is a sort of double definition of uh, of Christendom, but, but the two levels of this definition are, are absolutely intertwined. On the one level, Christendom is a society oriented towards God, a society structured around the liturgical life of the church and shaken to the core regularly by reform movements uh, that seek to reorient it towards the transcendent, to reorient it towards God. Uh, so reform movements like the Benedictine uh, monastic movement or the, the Cluniac reform or uh, the Franciscan order or, um, you know, the, the um, the actions and words of St. Catherine of Siena. But on the other hand, at the other level, you also have this characteristic of plural jurisdictions partly overlapping and partly in competition with each other. And uh, I hope that later I, I, I will give you some more examples, but I hope that this as a working definition, um, um, well, sounds already interesting to you and to your audience. No, that's very, very, very helpful, uh, Matthew. So, um just as a, a general guide, which time period are we talking about uh, from the sort of the beginning, the, the definite sort of, well, the beginning and end, however you want to define the beginning and end, what broad time periods are we looking at? You know, this is one of those questions that you know, the, the more the more I read, the more I study, the more I look at the sources and uh, the more I continue to, to change my mind about this. Um, but I would say that uh, uh, definitely one of the um, key turning points um, that are often indicated in the literature uh, is the conversion of Constantine, the Roman emperor who ended the persecutions and uh, uh, with the Edict of Milan uh, allowed uh, uh, Christian worship throughout the empire. Um, or anyway, uh, throughout the empire, uh, it, well, that, that's debatable, you know, because then uh, uh, he, he, he controls uh, only part of the empire and then gets to control the rest of it, claiming in part that um, Christians were still being persecuted or mistreated. But anyway, that is, that is one, of the, uh, uh, one of the turning points uh, of the possible uh, beginnings of, of, of Christendom, although later perhaps I will give you a, a counter argument about this. And the end of Christendom, I will say, uh, is a long business, uh, which begins uh, partly uh, already in the 
15th century when uh, uh, some of the uh, new so-called new monarchies some of the catholic countries uh, and kingdoms in particular erode the prerogatives and the powers of self of self governance of the church um and then uh, the definitive blow i would say is with uh, uh, machiavellianism and uh, with uh, uh, protestantism so machiavelli early 16th century if yes. I remember correctly, yes, early yeah. 16th century, and uh, and uh, with Luther as well in the early 16th century. Obviously, uh, they they kind of um, um, correspond to the two levels of my definition, right? Because uh, with Machiavelli, you have uh, uh, an assault on the idea of uh, um, uh, decentralization and plural jurisdictions and private governance, and with Luther, you have the attack on uh, uh, the Catholic Church. But in reality, if you if later we have to time we can see how actually the, the the issues are always these two issues are always intertwined so it's true that machiavelli mostly attacks um, um the weakness as he sees of of the states at his time and he wants he wants a stronger and more centralized state but at the same time his vision is also very uh, secularist and with regard to luther one may say the same uh, it is true that he attacks the, the the church but in attacking the church he ushers in a new conception of the state that is more centralized and that is, uh, uh, um, uh, well, a monopolist of violence. So, um, back to the start to the criticism and it's sort of uh, the way it was constituted. How does it emerge? What, what kind of ideas are behind Christendom? Because as you've uh, stridently pointed out, it's somewhat different to the concepts of the modern state we have today. So what kind of ideas were at the heart of shaping uh, Europe in that time? So it was in this sort of this this dual role of the, the church and the state and with over, overlapping jurisdictions etc okay well um with regard to the constitution of this new corporate body we may say which is which is the church um a, a transnational organization claiming um a space of autonomy and freedom uh, for itself vis-a-vis -vis the imperial government um, we could say that Christianity has this idea of limiting the power of the state um, uh, as an intrinsic idea, as an idea that is at the core of Christianity. And uh, uh, indeed, the persecutions during um, the empire were mostly due to the fact that Christians uh, made certain qualifications to their loyalty to the state. Um, they were loyal to the state, but not to the point of uh, um, throwing a pinch of incense, uh, as you know. And uh, now this is this is just a symbolic story, uh, the story about the, the incense. Um, it's not as if the Roman elite really believed that the that the or anyway most people among the Roman elite really believed that the emperor was a god or 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 that that signified that in, in any particular uh, way that had been spelled out theologically. It's more that um, Romans were the Romans the pagan Romans were annoyed at the fact that the Christians took everything so seriously. Right, they took everything so seriously in the sense that they thought that by throwing that uh, that incense they were um, really admitting the divinity of the emperor, right? Whereas the Romans had more the attitude of saying, well, look, this is just to keep the masses 
uh, under control. Why should you bother the masses by questioning the divinity of the emperor? But of course, that's that's the whole point for the Christians. The Christians wanted precisely to bother the masses and to go to the to the to the slaves or to the shoemakers or to the bakers, the workers, and tell them, look, this is the truth. There is only one God, um, and uh, and uh, uh, he's a God of love and he's Christ. Now, um, however, I have to say that rather than looking at Christianity itself, in this case, as the, as the rise of Christianity itself, as the beginning of Christendom. It is better to look at the aftermath of the Council of Nicaea. And the reason is that in the aftermath of the Council of Nicaea, you really have for the first time um, Christians articulating in a sophisticated way, in a more sophisticated way, what is their position with regard to the relationship between the church and the state. Um, so after uh, the Edict of Milan in 313, um, uh, persecutions against, against Christians end. Um, uh, but uh, uh, the problem is that according to Constantine, you know, Constantine still has the Roman vision of the state. And so he still thinks that he believes that the state has a duty, the emperor has a duty to manage the peaceful um, life of uh, the church, uh, because, of course, the Roman emperor uh, was, uh, among other things, Pontifex Maximus, so the head of the religious life of the empire. And so when the first heresies, where the first clashes among Christians uh, take place, uh, Constantine is deeply troubled by this. He is sincerely troubled. Because he believes, remember, that he had been made emperor thanks to the Christian deity, thanks to the Christian God. And so he really thinks that this is something uh, not only unpleasant, but dangerous for his rule and for the peace of the empire. And so he, he starts intervening. And I, I won't give you the details, but he starts to call councils of bishops to solve some of the forced diatribes among Christians. Uh, the forced diatribe, the first argument is uh, the one uh, with the Donatists in North Africa, uh, who believe that uh, uh, the bishops who had given up the, the holy books uh, during the persecutions, uh, in, rather than being tortured or killed, uh, well, uh, their sacraments uh, were not valid anymore. Um, the second uh, clash, which is much more important, is the one be between uh, the Arians and what later on, um, I mean, uh, remain as the, as the Orthodox uh, uh, Christians. Um, and uh, in, in the case of the Arian heresy, which was about uh, Christology, so the nature of, of the second person of the Trinity, um, Constantine calls the Council of Nicaea in 325, even though he is not a churchman, and uh, he oversees the works of the council, even though he is not even being baptized at that point, because he's only baptized at the end of his life. And, uh, uh, and so at this point, you realize for the first time that the emperor can be too friendly with the church. There is something that's been too friendly, right? So uh, uh, in the aftermath of this council where uh, Arianism is declared uh, a heresy, um, you have several bishops kind of like thinking back on what has happened. And for example, you have Bishop Hosius of Cordova, who writes to Constantine's son in 355. And uh, uh, he tells him, uh, and I'm, I'm reading what he says, do not interfere in matters ecclesiastical, nor give us orders on such questions. 
but learn about them from us. For into your hands God has put the kingdom, but the affairs of the church he has committed to us. If any man stole the empire from you, he will be resisting the ordinance of God. In the same way, you on your part should be afraid, lest in taking upon yourself the government of the church, you incur the guilt of a great offense. End of quote. So you see that um, um, this is remarkable. This is remarkable because this is the origin, uh, in a sense, of the doctrine of the two words. Um, the church claims independence, institutional autonomy from the empire, and it creates a space for freedom vis-a-vis -vis the state. And, uh, you know, on the other side of Eurasia, we have the, 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 the Chinese empire uh, uh, um, uh, dictating to, to the, to the uh, Buddhist monks uh, who can become a Buddhist monk, how he, he should, uh, should be educated, what kind of exam they have to take, what kind of dress they have to wear, uh, where they can go, where they cannot go, and limiting their, um, uh, their, their property rights and so on. So this is pretty... Uh, remarkable, I think. I know that we have come to take the distinction between church and state for granted, but this is quite remarkable, and it's definitely one of the turning points. You mentioned to me uh, uh, for the history of Christendom was Charlemagne, uh, despite his sort of um, barbarian or because of his barbarian uh, origins. Um, how does Charlemagne uh, play into the creation of Christendom in a slightly later uh, period? Yes. Uh, so, well, before to get into Charlemagne, let me just uh, uh, mention uh, quickly a couple of other turning points, uh, because, uh, OK, one may say, right, uh, so this uh, uh, emergence of claims by the church of being autonomous vis-a-vis -vis the state can only explain partly what happens in terms of the formation of the um, uh, of Christendom, as I've defined it previously. Right. I mean, where are the plural jurisdictions? Where, where is the plurality of law and the plurality of uh, uh, of um, uh, of corporations or anyway of, of uh, assemblies or, or nations of kingdoms? Uh, well, for that, the second turning point will be the, bar the so-called barbarian invasions, which obviously are related to Charlemagne later on, because Charlemagne is a Frank. Um, but um, the so-called barbarian invasions are, are actually a, a, a much longer process of barbarization of the empire and so on. But what matters for our conversation is simply this, that the Germanic peoples have a different idea of law uh, from the one held by the Romans. The Romans truly believe that reasonable men of every nation can agree upon a common law. Of course, they uh, will still be free to hold their own customary laws for petty matters and for more local issues. But the jurisdiction for what matters, for things like criminal law and so on, should be united under the empire. Um, so Roman law is the law of a territorialized and sovereign empire. When the Germanic peoples come around, um, they bring to what will become Europe a, a, a very different set of notions. Um, the Germanic people see law as a heritage of their, in, of their ethnic group. And so they reject the idea of an imperial law or of a law uh, that unites different peoples. They have the law of their ancestors depending on their group. 
And so the Goths will have their own law and the Burgundians will have their own law and the Franks will have their own law and so on. And after the collapse of the Roman order, what happens is that the Roman law just becomes one more option among the others for the remnants of the Roman population that is now being ruled by different barbarian kings. I think that this is really important because it, it, it really shows uh, another turning point and, and uh, um, uh, if uh, uh, Christian uh, monotheism and the autonomy of the religious sphere uh, is, 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 one, uh, is one of the turning points, the other turning point is surely the plurality of laws that you start to have uh, um, with the so-called barbarian kingdoms. And uh, uh, obviously, again, the two things are intertwined because Christianity is influencing the barbarians, although most of them initially uh, convert to Arianism. Um, for example, the custom of writing down the law is, uh, is due to the influence uh, of, of Christianity. Uh, the softening of brutality in some of the Germanic traditions, uh, uh, the elevation of, uh, of, of women in society, or uh, the elevation of kingship, of kingship uh, to a universal role of judge. Uh, that is understandable uh, between different groups of barbarians. All of these are things uh, that come from the impact of Christianity. So Christianity bridges the plurality of jurisdictions by offering a, a kind of like common shared morality and uh, with time, a shared liturgical life and with time, a shared uh, um, notion of the transcendent, which in and of itself, I mean, having a shared notion of the transcendent, uh, you know, may have some of of your listeners who are not uh, who are not Christians uh, uh, roll their eyes. But I mean, having a common shared view of the transcendent is pivotal um, to um, reject um, uh, uh, or to laugh off, as they deserve to be laughed off, um, a, a, any sort of uh, uh, project of social engineering. Um, uh, so to give an example, um, there is the code of uh, King Alfred the Great in the ninth century, which begins with the Ten Commandments. But at the same time, you have other codes like the Burgundian Code, which was uh, written much earlier, um, uh, which is a statutory, a statutory law, but it's simply recording the customary law of the Burgundian people. Um, so again, this plurality of law give rise gives rise to a plurality of jurisdiction. I, I hope that you see why, because obviously under the same king, there will be some Romans, there will be some Franks, there will be some Burgundians, and each of them need to be, or, or claims that he has the right to be judged according to his own law. <clears throat> and the third and final point, turning point that I will mention is the, is the Islamic conquest. Because um, the Islamic conquest redraw the map of Christendom. The heart of Christendom had been up until, um, uh, until that point um, in the Middle East and North Africa. Because of the Islamic conquest, um, the map gets redrawn. I mean, it's the beginning of, uh, of an assault on Christendom that will last for a thousand years. But um, there are some consequences that also have to do, uh, there are some indirect consequences that have to do with the centers of Christianity, right? Uh, so up to the, to the moment of this Islamic conquest, the three most prestigious seats in Christendom in terms of bishoprics had been Rome, Antioch, and Alexandria. Antioch and Alexandria are under the authority, uh, the strict authority of uh, the emperor in the east, in Constantinople. Whereas uh, 
the Pope in Rome has this claim to primacy, but he's surrounded by barbarians. Uh, he's constantly under siege. He's isolated. But after the Islamic conquest, um, because of the Islamic conquest, the primacy of Rome um, and the heart, I mean, in, in other words, the primacy of Rome is enhanced and the heart of Christendom moves to the Western half of Christendom, to the Latin half of Christendom, where Caesaropapism is impossible because the emperor is so far away. And in other words, the church is paradoxically more in danger uh, because of the rough barbarians surrounding it, but it's also more free from imperial control. It's more free on theological and ecclesiastical issues to take its own position and to self-govern. I, I, I hope that this makes sense. Um, so these are more or less the, the, the three turning points that I will, that I will uh, I mean, obviously, there are other turning points uh, that one may claim, but definitely these are three important moment, moments or, or factors in the formation of the ideas of uh, uh, of Christendom. Um, and I don't know if you want to comment on this or, or if you want me to move on to Charlemagne. Um, I was just going to mention, um, it was interesting you, you noted that the Christians started writing, writing the law down. Uh, it, it is interesting how the uh, Middle Ages uh, tends to be well. It's one. It's the Middle Ages for one thing. It, it, it is. It is. Is in between uh, sort of the classical period and and the Renaissance. You know, it's it's this inter, in between bit that we should kind of ignore because nothing really of great use happened. And it was also sort of associated with with, with the with the, with the Dark Ages as well. Although that tends to be I don't know, at least in England goes uh, and probably not last life, sort of the, not the late Middle Ages typically. Um, but um, I do think um, that it is of interest that you note that uh, the Christianity had the influence of sort of writing uh, law down. Um, uh, you could go to Charmaine earlier if you wish, but I was thinking it would be interesting to uh, for you to mention you know, how... Um, how Christianity and um, or and how sort of influential and how much sort of innovation, as it were, was t taking place sort of in the realm of law and constitution, law uh, and, um, and government that took place uh, in in the, the period of um, of Christendom. Uh, just to go back to the sort of Middle Ages uh, point, the um, in our say philosophy. We don't need to go to philosophy particularly, but it's always interesting that if you get history of philosophy courses, you tend to end up, oh, you, you, you'll finish in uh, the Greek period, or you may, you may go to some of the Roman, uh, maybe some some of the Roman thinkers, Marcus Aurelius possibly. Yes. Um, ignore everybody. Into <laughs> yes, I, I think that uh, this is, um, <clears throat> I mean, this is obviously a, a, a very interesting question. Um, which partly brings us back to uh, uh, to Charlemagne, right? I mean, uh, we uh, we we are in a context of um, a profound demographic and economic crisis, and uh, yet at this time uh, the church and Christian civilization uh, carry over the treasures of uh, uh, of antiquity i mean you mentioned the renaissance earlier where do the renaissance and the hum uh, the renaissance writers and the humanists go to find their sources to find uh, um uh, their ancient uh, treatises and uh, um and uh, and to rediscover uh, ancient philosophy well they mostly go to 
Catholic monasteries, because that's where for centuries and painstakingly um, Benedictine monks had been copying these manuscripts, saving them from destruction. Um, so the, the, the Middle Ages are a pivotal moment, even simply materially speaking because of that. But they are a pivotal moment for so many other reasons. I mean, they lay the foundations uh, for, the, for the economic rise of Europe. Uh, with agrarian developments, with the commercial revival, uh, which is really a commercial revolution that brings the level of, uh, uh, of economic productivity beyond, not just uh, to our recovery of what it was during the Roman Republic, but way beyond it, um, with the invention of new institutions, banks, uh, uh, bills of exchange, um, uh, and, and many others. Um, so, I mean, I, obviously, the, the issue of how to defend the, the medieval period and why the medieval period has been attacked so viciously uh, is a very broad one here. I just I just gave you a few a few ideas, but going back to Charlemagne, and uh, going back to one of the things that you asked me about what what was changing in terms of like um, um, constitutional uh, issues. Well, one of the constitutional issues is definitely the figure of the king, and uh, uh, the king during the Middle Ages becomes uh, partly because of the impact of of Christianity, um, uh, um, a figure with some a very precise duties, mostly the defense of his people and uh, the, and, uh, the, the, let's say, carrying out the role of a judge. Um, that's, that's what the king has to do primarily in this period. Um, but this emerges over time, because initially, if we look at the kingdom of the Franks, their first dynasty, uh, the Merovingian family, <clears throat> had a very um, different vision. The Merovingians are um, barbarians who see themselves as a, as a family of kings. So in other words, the Merovingians are born as kings. There is nothing particular that they have to do to show that they are good kings. They are born kings. They are not interested in uh, uh, the fate of the people uh, whom they happen to rule. They are simply military leaders for their Frankish uh, uh, nobles who happen to um, uh, have come in possession of certain lands where uh, also Burgundians uh, and Romans and Gallo-Romans were living. Uh, so in other words, the Merovingians don't have a sophisticated view of kingship and of their role uh, in terms of, of leaders of, of a country, of a kingdom. This comes in time later on, and in particular with the change of dynasties from Merovingian to Carolingian. And this brings us back to the issue of the relationship between church and state. The Carolingians are an increasingly powerful Frankish family who ends up having the de facto the control of the kingdom so that this family is actually more powerful than the Merovingians who are formally ruling the country. And what happens in 751 is that uh, Pepin, one of these uh, uh, Carolingians, um, asks the Pope in Rome whether it is uh, opportune for the one who truly holds power to also be king. 
<laughs> this is a very charged question. Now, so it happens that at that time in Rome, the Pope was under the assault of the Lombards, an Aryan group of Germanic uh, peoples. And uh, on the other hand, the Franks had converted directly from paganism to Catholicism. And so the Pope is thinking, you know what? Yes, uh, if you are effectively in charge of your people, you should also be the king. And uh, by the way, I need some help down here. So it would be nice if you help me to uh, fight the Lombards. And that's exactly what Pepin does. But what this creates is an alliance between church and state, which uh, implies that the new line of kings will have to constantly prove its legitimacy. They are not born kings like the Merovingians. They have been made kings by being anointed by the church, the bishop and then the pope. And also because they have to constantly prove their legitimacy, they also have to accept um, limits to their power, to their authority. So uh, in this uh, situation, kingship become based on consultation with the nobles. So the king starts to have a council of nobles around himself. And the, you can see that his rule is, uh, is not arbitrary. It is checked by the church and it is checked by the nobles. Um, the crowning of, the, of a new king, well, the, the elevation of a new king is very interesting because he forced is declared king by the nobles upon an oath that he takes. Then he is anointed by the bishop or the pope. And finally, he is lifted up on the throne by his nobles. So you see that the, the symbolism here is really interesting because immediately you see how the king cannot be a despot. He is made king. And when it comes to Charlemagne in particular, what's interesting is that he takes a special interest in the fate of his people, or rather of his peoples, because uh, uh, he is very successful at war. And so he, he has under his control eventually a lot of different uh, groups of people, not just the Franks and the Burgundians and the Gallo-Romans, but also parts of, of the I Italians and, uh, um, and the Lombards and the Saxons and many others. And uh, what he has in mind is the revival of the empire in the West. But this revival in Charlemagne's mind has to be a Christian revival, of course. Um, so he favors the church and you have this very strict cooperation between church and state. And once again, just like it happened with Constantine, a friend can become too close. And so you see here why the duality that I described before is, is so important. Because when uh, Charlemagne even dares to write a letter to the Pope in which he tells him openly that the task uh, of Charlemagne, of the empire, is to defend the church, but also um, to fortify it by making sure that the teachings of the church uh, uh, are passed down. And the, the role of the Pope is simply to lift up his arms and pray. And this basically means that the church will be turned into a department of the state, right? Um, this, this will roll back the distinction between church and state brought by Christianity. Well, the reaction of the Pope is to interpret the act of the coronation of Charlemagne in 800 in Rome, the very famous um, coronation of Charlemagne, in a way that pushes back. 
so that the people writing at the at the curia at the court of the of the pope interpret his gesture as having made Charlemagne emperor. Constitutus is the word in the Latin text. Whereas um, the people at the court of Charlemagne try to downplay what happened at the coronation. And this means that, uh, you know, they have two different conceptions of the relationship between church and state. But what matters for us is that the church is there to check the power of uh, the state, the imperial state of Charlemagne in this case, and to claim again its autonomy, its space of freedom and independent action. Your point on independent action is, is interesting. Um, I got to know the medieval political system mostly indirectly, well, reading uh, some of Hans Hopper's work, in particular the uh, Democracy, the God that Failed, and he sort of um, highlights the period as a sort of pre um well it's not exactly a natural order and i don't actually think he, he would argue that it's monarchy as he advocates for it well at least in in contrast to democracy because that's normal that's probably better um ascribed to sort of the absolute monarchs of say the 18th century 19th uh, more so than the uh, medieval period. Um, but Hopper argues um, it's very much of a decentralized uh, Europe and uh, more in keeping with what a sort of broadly uh, libertarian anarcho-capitalist society uh, would look like. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in uh, how... Uh, independent how these realms of independence were carved out um how um how does this relate to sort of like an overall overall sort of like legal systems you mentioned overlapping jurisdictions how does um that work without uh creating sort of a legal uncertainty as to which law um prevails in a particular area and also um how dissimilar or similar would you expect a oh, well, let, let, let's put it this way suppose you had a, a, a europe of uh monaco's andorra's etc how um similar to similar would you think the medieval period would be relative to a more modern um situation if that's a question that's possible to be answered briefly uh, or at all uh, so those are, are a few ideas i've asked a lot um tackle it how you see best um so in terms of how would um how will conflicts would be resolved over a territory that has competing of overlapping jurisdictions that was one of your questions am i correct yes yes that's correct um, well, this is, a, a, I, I think, I really believe that uh, if if we could go back in time and pose this question to a medieval uh, uh, jurist uh, or, or to a medieval uh, lawyer, you know, they, they will be very baffled by this question because it's a very modern question. And we have been trained into thinking about sovereignty as something monolithic uh, by the state. We are constantly bombarded by state propaganda that claims that we could never live without the modern state, right? But medieval states functioned in a very different way. The law was not 
uh, always uh, uh, territorialized. And so some of the law was applied to persons, not to places. So because you were a cleric, you fell um, in most cases under the authority and the jurisdiction of the church. It didn't really matter where you found yourself to travel. Uh, or if you are a merchant and you are visiting a foreign port, well, that port may be in Tunis, for, but, but uh, uh, just, just uh, for the sake of an example, but if you have a dispute with a fellow merchant, it doesn't matter whether you are Genoese and he's Venetian and you found yourself in Tunis. What matters is that you fall under um, uh, the jurisdiction of, uh, uh, of merchant law. Now, there have been historians recently who have tried to claim that merchant law is an invention and that merchant law is not really a big deal because uh, it was different depending on the place and it wasn't always applied in the same way. And yes, that's the whole point. <laughs> that's the whole point, that it wasn't the same in the same in every single place. But anyway, um, you will resort to private arbitration and you will call upon the services of a trusted, uh, uh, an experienced merchant or anyway, a notary who had uh, um, um, or somebody who had experience in issues uh, related to uh, merchandise. Um, or uh, let's say if you were a student, I already gave this example earlier, if you are a student of a university, it doesn't really matter uh, if you have gone uh, uh, to Paris to study, and uh, but you come from Florence. Well, uh, the point is that now you are in Paris and what's your business? Okay, you are there to study, you fall under the jurisdiction of the university, which is this free association of students at the beginning. At the beginning, the universities are associations of students. Um, so um, in many ways, in many instances, the question that you asked will be simply solved by remembering that law is personal and not territorialized in pre-modern times. Um, now, in terms of uh, uh, in terms of the rest of your question, I think it's it could be useful to uh, mention some examples of how sophisticated medieval law was, how um, inventive, how beautiful the solutions found were, and how many experiments were run by medieval people, depending on the circumstances in which they were. Um, for example, in Genoa. <clears throat> Genoa was established as, as a voluntary comune in 1096. Um, and uh, uh, the nobles who established this comune um, uh, swore an oath and, uh, um, and, and decided to have consuls whom they would elect to govern uh, the, uh, uh, the city. Um, and everything went well up until around 1164. And from 1164, we have the period of civil wars that last until 1194. Uh, now, the point is, why do I mention this? I mention this because in 1194, civil wars are ended, how? With an institutional experiment that works, not with the creation of a, a, a modern state, but with a very different um, and for us maybe unthinkable uh, kind of solution because you had different clans because you have different noble families fighting each other in the streets of the city and uh, um, competing for uh, uh, for the consulship. Um, <clears throat> well, the solution seems to the Genoese to be the following. Why don't we call a foreign professional in law 
who being foreigner is super parte, so is, is impartial, we call him in to be the judge in Genoa, but obviously the problem is, okay, what if this guy becomes uh, colluded? What, what if this guy allies himself with one of the factions? Or what if this guy becomes too powerful and himself a dictator? Of course, the Genoese, I mean, medieval people were not stupid. They will ask the same questions that we ask. And this is why the figure of the Podesta was regulated through a contract that he had to sign. Um, he could be the Podesta in the city only for one year. He could not buy property. He could not marry or have any family member marrying any Genoese citizen. He could not bring with himself uh, more armed men than the ones established in the contract. And he, um, at the end of his uh, uh, tenure, he, he had to stay within the walls of the city for 15 days to respond of any accusations of wrongdoings. Now, this is a solution that is quite uh, inventive and quite different from what we would think of uh, uh, in, in the modern time. But the Podestaria, this institution of the Podesta, worked. It worked very well. And for the following century and more, Genoa was pacified and uh, became one of the most powerful cities, uh, city-states in, in Christendom. Um, another example that I can give you is uh, the example of composite monarchies. <clears throat> um, uh, many people in your audience, I'm sure, will be uh, will be fo uh, have been following what's going on in Catalonia recently. Um, now, why do the people in Catalonia have this very strong uh, sense of national identity and autonomy? Why do they have the, this very um, uh, uh, characteristic culture? And why do they have their own language, their own literature? Well. Partly this has to do with the medieval history of Spain, quote unquote Spain. Actually, Spain is a product of modernity. Spain itself, as the result of the reconquest uh, by the Christian kingdoms uh, coming down from the north and reconquering um, uh, the Iberian Peninsula uh, from, uh, Islam, from the Islamic rule. Um, uh, well, uh, uh, Spain was a collection of crowns. And in particular, there isn't really anything remotely similar to Spain before uh, 1469, when the Queen of Castile, Isabella, and the King of Aragon, uh, Ferdinand, marry. But what is interesting is that Aragon is itself a composite monarchy. Uh, the crown of Aragon is actually the union of three kingdoms, Aragon proper, Valencia, and Catalonia. And each of these kingdoms maintain their statutes their customary law, their autonomy and their privileges. Privileges means, for example, that the king <clears throat> cannot ask for money to Catalonia in the same way in which he asks for money to Aragon. And in all of these cases, if he wants to ask for something, he has to call on the local parliaments and uh, obtain not simple majorities, but super majorities or even unanimity if he wants to raise funds, if he wants to raise an army. And so you see, the, the medieval conception of liberty um, is, is, is so imbued, is so, is so intertwined uh, with this idea of plurality of jurisdictions um, and uh, uh, that, that, is, that is at once difficult for us to grasp, but also uh, very, uh, very much fascinating. Um, the nobles, 
in Catalonia, when swearing their fealty to a new king, will say a sentence uh, to the effect of, uh, we who are not any worse than you swear fealty to you who are not any better than us and only as long as you shall keep uh, the uh, you know the the the, uh, the law keep and respect the laws and privileges of uh, uh, our uh, country and so you see that um, the limits to the centralization of power in uh, medieval Christendom came from many different quarters, from the church as a transnational institution, within the church there were different religious orders and so on, um, from a personal conception of the law, uh, from uh, freedom of association which immediately created new jurisdictions, and from competing powers even within the same crown. And I hope that these examples um, um, are, uh, are are interesting to you, um, and uh, I mean for people who may think, okay, what what did this give to modernity? I mean, why why should we care about this right now? Um, it is from constitutional principles developed in medieval Christendom uh, that we derive some of the so-called modern uh, human rights or, 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 or modern constitutional concepts. Um, for example, the principle of quod omnes, uh, quod omnes tangit ab omnibus uh, approbator, which means that basically what touches all is to be approved by all. Well, this was, this was not invented by John Locke. This, is, this was articulated in the context of um, the development of canon law, the law regulating the life of the church. And canon lawyers debated for centuries what should happen in the case of a heretical pope, what should happen in the case of a pope who is a sinner, a public sinner. The pope should not, um, uh, even the pope, notwithstanding his supremacy, um, uh, has a limit to his authority. But how can we define this limit? How should the limit be enforced? And so on. And all of these discussions were later on um, influencing the development of constitutional law in the secular realm. Because obviously the duality that I described before meant also that church and states or church and secular jurisdictions were not just competing with each other and checking on each other, but also in a constant dialogue. They were influencing each other. Ah, that's, um, that's some very uh, detailed and interesting examples. What I'm thinking is now, though, is if... Um... If the situation worked uh, as well as uh, you said it did, which I have no reason to deny, what then precipitates the move away from um, these non-territorial uh, monopolists, well, not monopolists really, uh, non-territorial uh, law overlapping jurisdictions, what then precipitates the move towards a more centralised concept, um, territorialized concept of uh, sovereignty. And how and what time periods uh, are we talking about as to as to when the modern state uh, begins its uh, ascent? Well, it, it, as Ludwig von Mises say, that the, the genuine history of mankind is the history of ideas. And um, um, contrary to some accounts that are technologically deterministic or accounts that stress uh, economic structures and so on. I think that ideas 
um, really have an impact on uh, uh, on, 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 on socio-political changes. And um, with time, uh, we see the development of ideas that question uh, these uh, um, jurisdictions, this jurisdictional competition or this jurisdictional uh, variety and, and or this plurality of, uh, um, uh, of, of uh, well, let's say, of, of judges, of arbitrators and of lawgivers. Um, there are many different opinions about the turning points. Um, surely there have been uh, people like uh, Marcellus of Padua, for example, who have argued for a stronger central government uh, uh, already during the late Middle Ages. Um, but I would say that two revolutionary and disastrous steps are the ones taken by Machiavelli and Luther. <clears throat> now, with Machiavelli, we see the denial of the natural law. Uh, we see the, uh, well, if not the creation of, of a concept of reason of state, because this was already uh, been developed, had already been developed earlier, but definitely a bold and unapologetic defense of the concept of reason of state. That's the issue with Machiavelli. It's not that he's the force to propose this, but he is the force to do it so boldly and unapologetically. Um, reason of state and the denial of natural law practically means that from now on, um, there is a morality for the state, a moral code for the state, and a different moral code for everybody else. So the state um, you know, gets a pass for what it does. The monarchs can get a pass for what they do. Uh, because, well, if you have read Machiavelli, you know his reasoning. Um, and the, the idea is that the interest of the state, whether a principality or not, comes forced. The state should also not tolerate internal uh, um, uh, competition to its, uh, uh, to its uh, jurisdictional authority. The state should be militarized. Let's remember that Machiavelli himself directly oversaw one of the first experiments in, uh, uh, um, um, uh, in conscription in Florence. Uh, Machiavelli um, uh, also uh, mocks uh, uh, Jesus Christ as a model of political leader. He indirectly does so, um, wh uh, whereas he sees as good political leaders those who were armed, those who were ready to strike force and to use violence against their enemies. I mean, it's a complete reversal of the conception of uh, political philosophy, morality, and uh, uh, constitutionalism that you have in the in the medieval period. Um, the other the other uh, uh, disastrous step is the one taken by by Luther. And uh, if you have, I mean, obviously having heard what I said at the beginning about the importance of uh, uh, of the Catholic Church. Uh, for the development of ideas such as the distinction of church and state and for the development of a context within which arguments about competing spheres of jurisdictions uh, could in turn uh, 
favor the development of uh, uh, of a plurality of jurisdictions and right and a tradition of rights claims well you you probably already understand why i think that luther uh, uh, was uh, was really instrumental to the downfall of of christendom um it, it's important it's important to 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 realize that uh, that the the origins of the secular dominance over the church started before the so-called wars of the of religion the wars of religions the, the wars of religion were not really wars of religion they were um, uh, wars with which the state uh, took over uh, powers um, or jurisdictions that were ecclesiastical that had been ecclesiastical and uh, uh, luther contributes to these um, by claiming that um, there is a coercive power that is ordained by God uh, not to be given to uh, uh, ecclesiastical authorities, but only to secular authorities. So in other words, Luther denies any ecclesiastical jurisdiction. Uh, he does so in many of his writings, also in uh, uh, to the Christian nobility of the German nation. Uh, and so this theory that Luther develops is the denial and the defeat of uh, uh, the medieval theory of the two swords, uh, and, and, and it relegates uh, Christianity and uh, the church as a corporate body to the private sphere. But by relegating Christianity to the private sphere, this means that now the bodies of uh, every, uh, well, the bodies of Christians are um, handed over to the state. And to some extent, not just the bodies, but also their minds, because with the principle that um, uh, later develops, who um, use uh, regio, I use regio. So the 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 uh, the idea is that whatever is the faith of the king will have to be the faith of uh, uh, of the country ruled by the king, at least officially. So um, uh, with Luther, we also see another uh, development uh, uh, that ushers in modernity, which is the idea of the universal priesthood. Now, the idea of the universal priesthood um, is the origin of the most extreme forms of egalitarianism. Remember that politics is downstream of culture or right, but it is also downstream of theology. Atheism, true atheism is impossible. Everybody has a theology. Everybody has a metaphysics, whether they like it or not. And so with the theological idea, of uh, uh, universal priesthood, what you have is the denial of any natural hierarchy, of any ecclesiastical hierarchy, of any apostolic hierarchy, and of any sort of hierarchy uh, such as the ones that, um, uh, th that characterize the different associations of uh, um, medieval Christendom. Uh, so brought to its consequences to its extreme consequences um, the 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 idea of uh, a universal priesthood ends up with jacobinism obviously we don't have the time to to follow all the developments of this um, but i hope that this answers uh, your question obviously other people may have different opinions about the turning point for for the end of christendom but these i think are two important turning points and uh, there is a great article by william cavanaugh 
who explains how the wars of religion were not really about religion and and and, and also the consequences of uh, of Luther's ideas in in the in the making of the myth of the state as a peacemaker in this myth that we have that oh, we need the state because without the state we wouldn't have peace the topic of the day is Christendom, and I think the implicit or explicit premise here is that historical Christendom or the Latin variety is more closer to the standard than the post-Luther version. Uh, isn't isn't Christianity isn't the, the premise behind Christianity is Christendom is Christian Christianity? Isn't Christianity a kind of universal creed, including of the Catholic or or Latin variety, not just merely of the Protestant variety, where wasn't the sort of ammunition already there and Luther just sort of brought it out um, wasn't it you, you can get sort of Protestant like tendencies earlier I mean isn't Christianity a kind of you know universal thing anyway there's not going to be some law for Antioch or Genoa or even later on America or Mexico it's going to be the roughly the same thing on the important things all around anyway so isn't that isn't the universalism already there and Luther's just bringing it to the forefront um okay I, I think that definitely uh, Christianity is a um, universal religion. That's uh, that's um, without without doubt, and uh, indeed that's that is one of the strengths of Christianity. It's monotheism and uh, it's uh, uh, universalism. Um, but um, I'm not sure that you could say that uh, Luther, uh, what Luther brought out from uh, um, from Christianity is universalism in the sense that universalism was already present the claims of the catholic church were pretty close to the claims of the roman empire although on a different level right just like the roman empire um, had this conception of law as uh, something being understandable and universal um, well universal because it was understandable um, uh, by your men um, similarly the church was the church of all races and uh, uh, it, it, it it tried it was a missionary church from the start right and especially after gregory the great gregory the great um uh, really uh, gives impulse to the conversion of the barbarians uh, uh in in northern europe so uh I'm not really sure what you mean specifically by saying that it was uni that Luther brought out universalism in the uh, from uh, uh, from Christianity because I think it was already there yes but uh, Luther um perhaps indirectly or um without willing it uh, opened the way for national churches right which in a sense are the denial of universalism, the denial of the universal claim of, of the Church of Rome. And so in uh, um, favoring the rise of national churches, um, Lutheranism and Protestantism uh, accelerate the process of centralization of power because the church in places like England becomes a department of the state. Now, on the other hand, and Kind of like to uh, to to um, uh, moderate a bit to 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 uh, nuance a bit the argument that I'm making here. It is true that even before Luther, there had been challenges to the independence <clears throat> of the uh, of the religious sphere, and so already in the 15th century, in places like Spain, 
the monarchs had wrestled away from the authority of the church important areas of ecclesiastical jurisdiction. It is also true that in 1516, so before the Lutheran uh, uh, reform, in, in 16, uh, sorry, in 1516, um, the King of France obtains from the from the Pope, forces the Pope to grant the Concordat of Bologna, after which the bishops in France, the abbots in France are named by the king, not by the Pope. And so uh, um, uh, in a sense, what Luther does is accelerating this process. And one of the things that William Cavanaugh notices in his in his article is that um, Protestantism does not succeed in all of those countries where the monarchs had already obtained um, some of the privileges of the church. And by privileges, I mean rights in this context, uh, rights in this context. So where, where, where the monarchs had no need, had no use for uh, Protestantism, they stayed Catholic. Okay, uh, obviously this is a simplification by William Cavanaugh, but I think that there is something uh, true there. Uh, in places like France and uh, uh, and Spain, um, the church had already been robbed of some of its prerogatives, of some of its jurisdictions before Luther. Um, I, I hope that this kind of answers uh, your 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 um, um, your comment. It does, um, but it's, it still seems to be the there's a lot of continuity. Uh, Luther is picked as the person, but as you brought up about Spain. Um, they already wrestled away um, a certain uh, privileges. They got certain privileges too. Uh, I'll still use a sort of modern analog. I just sort of want to push further on this because it's sort of interest of me. Um, uh, we recently yes, had and, a, and, I, and I and I agree. I agree that there is a lot of continuity, and I also agree that in a non-secularized society, obviously. Uh, 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 the Protestant form of Christian, uh, Protestant forms of Christianity will also uh, contribute to checking the power of the state, or potentially to create an uh, um, uh, alternative jurisdictions and overlapping jurisdictions. I completely agree with that. R uh, religious faith is, in and of itself, as I mentioned earlier, um, whether Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox, um, something that intrinsically has the potential to limit the power of the state because it opens up wider uh, horizons. It shows uh, the transcendent uh, and uh, in other words, it questions. One of the things that the modern state does, which is the claim to embrace all of human existence, uh, the, the claim of the possibility to bring heaven on earth. Well, uh, this is the claim made by the modern state and uh, of course, uh, Protestant Christians, just as much as as, as Catholic Christians, um, uh, are uh, are a contradiction to this, or 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 are a force to check uh, or to go against this claim. That's that's fair enough. Um, Swithin, do you want to continue with your question? Very briefly, um, you mentioned uh, Machiavelli and uh, Luther, uh, and I, I would say that ideas matter. And the, my my interest here is. How do the ideas of Luther and Machiavelli become so widespread and accepted such that we can have sort of like the origin of the um, of like the, the individual that doesn't really exist in the same way uh, before, say, the early modern period? Uh, 
how, how, how does this all these these different sort of theological uh, sort of political ideas disseminate into the the population such that uh, you, you can have the rise of this modern state? Is it was it just a case that it was um, convenient for for local kings to take on uh, the mantle of Lutheranism? You could argue to some extent this was what Henry VIII did, although Henry VIII, interestingly, was um, centralised even earlier than that. Uh, well, Henry VII does uh, in, in England. is very much the, the start of the modern centralisation uh, of the English state, uh, which predates Luther. Um, so was it a case of the kings were trying to, for whatever reason, had got more power and then oh this gave him some justification for doing so and therefore got clerics who were uh, uh, favorable towards him to then disseminate this information to the um to the population you know, was it via the printing press and sort of like the upper middle classes who were literate and it was disseminated that way was it multifaceted this obviously is a very difficult question to answer but in general what would what would your speculations be this is indeed a very difficult uh, question. Um, um, it, it could be approached from many different angles. Uh, now you were mentioning Henry VIII. Uh, yes, I agree that centralization had started before Henry VIII. In fact, I wrote an article last year for um, uh, for Mises uh, on the Cornish rebellion against Henry VII. Um, but um, uh, going back to Henry VIII, uh, now you mentioned Henry VIII. Um, you know, one of the things that Henry VIII is famous for is the suppression of the monasteries. Now, the monasteries, the monastic life, is one of the most humble, silent, and yet self-evident signs of contradiction in the world. It introduces a pace of life that is oriented um, towards the beatific vision and uh, <clears throat> nowadays to find the monastery we have to look for it and and, and, and travel there and maybe it may be quite far from wherever we're living um, but in medieval england in medieval europe there were thousands thousands of monastic houses and destroying these very physical symbolic a real presence um, across England, well, that in and of itself secularizes society. That in and of itself um, is an, in, a, in, a, um, in a way um, um, secularizing religion. And um, so now you were mentioning that, and I just I just thought about it. You know that there are so many different answers that one may give to this uh, to this question. How were these new ideas about society and the state um, that were a bit of a denial of of Christendom? Um, how were they spread? Well, the sudden disappearance of the monastic life surely contributed to that. Um, another um, uh, another way in which uh, some of the uh, uh, some of the uh, Lutheran ideas were spread were just were just through um, uh, the ban on on previous religious practices. Uh, there is uh, Imon Duffy's famous uh, book on the stripping of, of the altars on this. Um, now, on things that are more that have more to do with the jurisdictions and with the political organization of Christendom, um, some of these only were forced upon 
the rural populations of Europe uh, many centuries later. Uh, for example, um, during the French invasion of Italy, one of the problems that the Napoleonic uh, <clears throat> authorities had was how to force the Italian people uh, to accept conscription. Conscription was something unheard of uh, to the vast majority of the Italian population who were re living in rural areas, had very little contact with any state entity, and uh, um, uh, what's more, uh, will not be willing to leave their families and their traditional economic uh, uh, um, uh, uh, patterns of life uh, to go to fight uh, for, for, for a foreign king or even for a new, new newly established uh, puppet state. And so this shows that, uh, and the resistance put up by, by so many young Italian men, uh, like uh, uh, fleeing from their village or pretending to be ill or uh, whatever, uh, you know, this, this, uh, um, uh, this, is, uh, uh, this is something that shows that as late as the beginning of the 1800s, there were vast areas of Europe where people had continued to live the life of Christendom had never come in, in, in contact with, uh, um, uh, with, uh, with the modern state and uh, were eventually uh, brought to um, accept an entirely different view of the world, um, I will say mostly through violence. And so you see, if you think about the, uh, the end of the monastic houses in England in the 16th century, and then uh, these other examples from the 19th century, you have different chronologies, different ways in which these ideas were spread. Uh, but obviously the end result is that uh, um, uh, uh, we, we see the, the end of Christendom as I have defined it uh, uh, previously, or as I've tried to, to describe it previously, obviously with, this, uh, with the limited amount of time that we have. That's uh, very interesting. That seems to link possibly to sort of like maybe urban spheres are easier to control, ideas disseminate more easily, but the, the rural populations would well, take it. Remember, remember, uh, remember that the greatest uh, and most effective resistance to the French Revolution within France came from Vendée, which was uh, a rural area of France where uh, the revolutionary government uh, uh, committed genocide against the Catholic population. And um, uh, interestingly, I mean, the, the peasants in Vendée. Uh, represented a bit the spirit of, of the rest of the peasants in the rest of, of, of the country. After the very first stage of the revolution and after the so-called abolition of, uh, of feudalism, they were done. They were happy with it. They were fine with the abolition of the dues um, that they had uh, to pay. Um, according to them, you know, the revolution, okay, that's it. But they, they didn't want to hear about the abolition of the monarchy. No way. Or, or uh, the abolition of Christianity, the persecution of the church, the elimination of, a, uh, of the church's uh, jurisdiction, or even the creation of a new um, civic religion with the supreme being and, uh, and all of that. They were horrified by that, which, against, which uh, goes a little bit to show that maybe you, you have a point there when, when you talk about you know, the, the, um, the role of urbanization, that were like two different Francis, that were like two different uh, nations, really, um, that didn't really know how to talk to each other. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think that does play into some modern political 
um, disputes uh, between in America. Uh, I think you'll have a, a big divide between the urban class and the rural uh, bodies, and that will be one of the major sort of um, clashes, culturally speaking. But thank you for uh, joining us, Matthew. That's been a fascinating uh, survey of, uh, of Christendom, and I hope we can talk to you again uh, sometime soon. Thank you very much I for just, having me. Thank you. I'd just now like to thank everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and family, and please subscribe to us on uh, YouTube and Podbean. The more subscribers we get, the higher we get in the search rankings, and the more people can access this material. And if you'd like to contact the show for any reason, please contact us at mindgrindlibertyshow at gmail.com. That's mindgrindlibertyshow at gmail.com. Gmail.com. That's mindgrindlibertyshow at gmail.com. 